Good morning. My name is Peter. I'm one of the pastors here. Just a couple of comments as we get started on the sermon. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell, uh, one of my favorite authors, I'm going to refer to him again later on in the talk, but he has this one little quote, and I think actually he's quoting somebody else. He said, "Complicated, complicated cases make bad law. And uh, I think about that as I think about the post-9-11 world we live in and how there has been so much compromise to the quality of travel, but life in general because of all the increased security and fear that grips us and the paranoia, and uh, it's made some bad laws. And so I think that's one of the things I grieve as I think about 9-11, how much our life and the world and the way we approach it has changed. And so I grieve the loss of that. I wanted to make that comment. We are continuing in the series in Ecclesiastes, and we're asking the question, what's the point? What's the point of anything? You know, the word that the preacher, uh, the author of Ecclesiastes uses is futile. Everything is futile. And then some translations say meaningless. Last week's translation read enigma. Everything is an enigma. Everything is a chasing after the wind. You can, but what's the point? of chasing after the wind. Uh, Today I'm going to read the passage for us uh, out of chapter 9, starting with verse 1. I'm going to skip some verses, but follow along with me. And after I read the passage, uh, I'm going to show a short little video. And uh, our family has been laughing so much over this video that we've been watching on repeat. So you're going to get a little treat here. Okay, let's read the passage together. I mean, I'm going to read. Follow along with me as I read. So I reflected on all this, attempting to clear it all up. I concluded that the righteous and the wise, as well as their works, are in the hand of God. Whether a person will be loved or hated, no one knows what lies ahead. Everyone shares the same faith, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the ceremonially clean and unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. What happens to the good person also happens to the sinner. What happens to those who make vows also happens to those who are afraid to make vows. This is the unfortunate fact about everything that happens on earth. The same fate awaits everyone. In addition to this, the hearts of all people are full of evil, and there is folly in their hearts during their lives. Then they die. Jumping to verse 10. Whatever you find to do with your hands, do it with all your might, because there is neither work nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom in the grave, the place where you will eventually go. Again, I observe this on the earth. The race is not always won by the swiftest. The battle is not always won by the strongest. Prosperity does not always belong to those who are the wisest. Wealth does not always belong to those who are the most discerning. Nor does success always come to those with the most knowledge. For time and chance may overcome them all. Surely, no one knows his appointed time, like fish that are caught in a deadly net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. Just like them, all people are ensnared at an unfortunate time that falls upon them suddenly. This is what I also observed about wisdom on earth, and it is a great burden to me. There was once a small city with a few men in it, and a mighty king attacked it, besieging it and building strong siege works against it. However, a poor but wise man lived in the city, and he could have delivered the city by his wisdom. 
but no one listened to that poor man. So I concluded that wisdom is better than might, but a poor man's wisdom is despised. No one ever listens to his advice. The words of the wise are heard in quiet, more than the shouting of a ruler is heard among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner can destroy much that is good. The word of the Lord. And now the video. Now, we know life is meaningless. What about this guy's life? What about this guy's plight in life? Meaningless? Futile? An enigma? How's your life going? Is it sort of happening to you and you're not sure what's happening? What's your theory on life? That's basically the question that the book of Ecclesiastes has been asking. What's your theory? And the preacher is testing out all of his theories, and he sees the meaninglessness of his theories. It doesn't add up. You know, there's a kind of futility and frustration that he's experiencing. The math that he so commonly uses to figure out what's going to happen doesn't work. The formulas, the principles, the insights, it's just not working. What about you? What's been working for you in your life? What's not working? What are the principles you want to teach your children? Are things adding up for you? I was thinking about uh, this chapter this week, and the chapter basically says, Everybody has some sort of works orientation. You know, you believe that if you work hard, if you're wise, if you don't give up, if you're good to others, if you practice integrity, then life should add up. And then the preacher says, actually, it doesn't. The same fate awaits everyone. Nobody knows when or how they're going to go, but they are eventually going to go. And you think that righteous people are going to do well, But sometimes they don't, and you think wicked people are going to do poorly in life, and sometimes they don't. It all seems kind of random. Where is the rhythm and the logic to how life works? Uh, I was thinking about some of the people in my life that I've known. There's a a man that I'm going to call M, and uh, he comes from a really hard background. His father abandoned him when he was just a baby, His mom raised him struggling in poverty. She married a guy. They opened up a restaurant, and the restaurant didn't do well. And then uh, she got diagnosed with cancer. So she was a very distracted mom, and he had to sort of raise himself. And I met him years ago, and I took him right away. And I found his story to be fascinating because he turned out so well. 
You know, I, I would think, knowing his life story, that he'd be kind of messed up, but not at all. He was an incredibly decent human being, wonderful bedside manners, deals so well with my kids, so polite and courteous, and also generous, super easy to talk to, wicked smart. And I watched, as he lived with us, I watched him. Uh, he was a consultant. He left his consulting job to start a business. And then I watched the way he thought through his business decisions and the kind of mentors that he invited into his life and the ways that he sort of combed through the important things in his life, often inviting me to think along with him. And I watched him go from a normal, you know, $70,000 a year consultant in New York City to becoming a, a multimillionaire right before my eyes. And I thought, I'll be darned. How did this happen? How does a guy with such a hard uh, family of origin situation turn out so well, so good-natured, and also smart and successful? And I thought about this guy. Uh, I thought about another woman. I'll call her H. Uh, known her for over 20 years. And uh, I, I watched her grow up, and just the way she was, I just thought she was going to be a failure in life. I really did. This was my secret theory, my own personal sense of where she was headed. And then I watched her grow up and make one really good decision about her work. And then I watched her make a really good decision about who she was going to marry. And it was a hard situation, but somehow she navigated her way through it. And her life is flourishing now. I never would have guessed this about age. She was supposed to be a loser. I really thought she was. Uh, I thought about another woman. I'm going to call her S. And I saw her work hard. And uh, I saw her go after all that her heart desired. She was really diligent. She put her mind to it. She put her hands to the plow and didn't look back. And 18 years later, I'm thinking about her life and who she is and how she feels so stuck in life. And she herself is disillusioned about how life works. And I would have sworn that she was going to do well in life. She did everything right. She checked every box, and yet it didn't add up for her. Do you have any people that come to mind like that? I want to list out some words for us. These are the words that the preacher uses in the chapter. Uh, two sets of words. He basically has two categories. He says there are people who are righteous, who are wise, who are loved, who are good, who are religious, who are sacrificial, who make vows. You know the type who make vows, right? They have New Year's resolutions. They set goals. They're not afraid to do that. Uh, they plan. They have knowledge. They're the swiftest. They're the strongest. They're the most discerning. And yet, people who fit into this category, they do about the same on average as the other uh, side. People who are sinners, People who don't work hard, people who are hated, people who are wicked, people who are bad, people who are irreligious. Life doesn't seem to be fair. Life doesn't seem to allow us to put our finger on a formula and just follow the formula. It doesn't seem to work that way. 
So look at the two categories and think about a couple of people. Think about one or two people in column A. Over on your left, the righteous, wise, loved, good, religious, sacrificial. These people. Think about somebody on the other side. Sinner, lazy, hated, wicked, bad, irreligious. And I, I did this little exercise for me, and uh, I listed about six people in each category, and it really was a wash. Some people who should have done well didn't do well. And some people who really deserve not to do well, they're doing great. I don't know. I don't know about this life business. It doesn't quite add up. I think our human nature, we have a propensity towards control, receiving the credit, and maintaining security in our life. It's what the scriptures call the law. We have an orientation towards the law. We love the law. We love knowing that input equals output. But the preacher reminds us that that's not how things work. And each chapter has given us one main lesson. And today's main lesson is that God, by design has created life in such a way that that kind of law math does not, does not ever add up. And the lesson that God wants us to learn through this chapter and all throughout Scripture and all throughout our life is that we are not in control, that we cannot be in control, and that we never will be in control. This is what the preacher is saying when he says, everybody has a death date and you don't know what it is. And you don't know the manner in which you are going to step into your death date. Consider, God has given one as well as the other, the good times and the bad. The universe is so complex. It is such a large system, and we are such a small part of a mostly unknown existence that there is no way we can possibly have control. You can spend your whole life trying to be good, but it doesn't guarantee the outcome that you're hoping for. And you can believe all you want that it's you, that it's your good looks, it's your competence, your grit, your agility, whatever you think it is, but it's really not that. Uh, I love this one economist in Chicago, at the University of Chicago. Uh, he says, you know, parents actually don't do much to raise their children. They think they do. But his research has found that children grow up to be their own people, making their own choices far sooner than we realize. And as science delves into the idea of nature and nurture even more, we have more and rising evidence that parents don't influence their kids as much as we think we do. We just love to take credit for good children, is what the economist says. And he gives us one example. He says, it's like talking to a five-year-old about kissing. And they say, oh, that's gross, mom. I don't want to do that. I'll never do that. And then you say, no, kissing is good. It's a way to show affection. Humanity is about connections and intimacy. And you just keep 
preaching the gospel of kissing all throughout their life. And then when they turn 17, they have their first kiss. And then you say, see, it's because I taught you about kissing. Now you like kissing. It's as silly as that example. You didn't teach your child, uh, child about the virtues of kissing. They just know this because they're 17 now. So much of what happens in life is independent of our control or credit. And the security we seek is not found in our own righteousness or our ability to uh, determine our destiny. This is the lesson of chapter 9. That God alone is in control. And that God alone deserves all of the credit. And it's not the law that we obey that gets us where we need to go, but it's God's mercy and God's grace. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 26 says this, To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. And really the question about life becomes, well, who pleases God? And the answer is those who will trust not in their works or their ability to keep up with the law, but those who are willing to live by the deep fundamental truth that by God's grace and by mercy we stand. And it's by God's grace and his mercy that we walk and live and move and have our being. And I think this is the deep truth that we fight because grace, by definition, is always experienced by the human being as an indictment. Because if we subscribe to grace, that means that we have to. It means that our works are not sufficient, that we are not as smart as we think we are, that we're not as good as we hope to be, that we fail at every turn. And so at the end of it, all we have to rely on actually is God's grace. And so to say yes to God's grace is to come to accept our own selves as failures, as sinners, as those in need of grace and mercy. And that's always a kind of struggle for us. One of the... uh, points of theology I had to work through as I was growing in my faith is this idea of worshiping God. You know, the uh, common way to think about it is God is insecure because he wants worship from human beings. But the truth is God is a God of truth. And so he's asking the question, who deserves worship? Who truly deserves worship? Is it you? Do you deserve the credit? for your life and the good things that happen to you. You deserve credit for the trajectory of your life. If you're doing well, is it really you? And the answer is no, it's actually God. He's the one who deserves it. When you finally get to heaven and you stand before God, you are going to understand how your life played out. And you're going to see in the final that it was really all God and all God's grace. And by the the weight of that truth is going to press you down onto your knees and you're going to acknowledge him as Lord. Not because he's 
pressing his thumb down on you, using power to coerce you to worship him, but because you're going to see with your own eyes and know in your own heart that God alone is worthy. And so you'll worship him because truly, truthfully, he alone deserves the glory and not you. Psalm 50, 9 and following, uh, underscores this point. It says this, the psalmist says this, I do not need to take a bull from your household or goats from your sheepfolds, says God speaking. For every wild animal in the forest belongs to me, as well as the cattle that graze on a thousand hills. I keep track of every bird in the hills, and the insects of the field are mine. This is my favorite line. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. Can you imagine God just as like a child or a lazy husband who comes to you and says, I'm hungry. I have needs, and you can meet them. No, that would be silly. For the world and all it contains belongs to me. Therefore, what do we do? We present to God a thank offering. Pray to me when you are in trouble. I will deliver you and you will honor me. The way you please God is by coming to terms with your own failure and fragility as a human being, as a created being, as one dependent on their creator. God isn't saying, I'm not sure if I'm going to deliver you this time because this time it really was your fault. God says, no, no, no. Deliverance always belongs to me. Even when you thought you didn't deserve forgiveness, I forgive you. Even when you deserve forgiveness, you think, I forgive you. It's always been me. The fact that you feel undeserving or unworthy is irrelevant. It's not about your goodness. It's about my goodness. It's not about your lovability. It's about my loving nature. It's not about what you deserve, but it's about my generosity. This is the final lesson of what it means to be a Christian, to believe in the grace of God. This is the only economy that's ruling the world. This is the only truth that is not meaningless. It is by God's grace. And your job as human beings is to make asks of God. What do you need in your life? What trouble are you in? What circumstance is uh, causing you to feel oppression or hopelessness? Is your heart downcast? Is your face fallen? Ask. Without fear, find the courage and the humility to ask of God because that is the way you honor God, by asking him for things, by acknowledging him as the source. Offer him a thank offering after he has rescued you yet again. And when God delivers you and you say, my goodness, you've done it again, Lord. You really are a loving caring, engaged being. And that honors God. And that is the final lesson of life. Romans chapter 11, verse 32 says, For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. There's a way that God sort of goes, and he just sort of lets us go to our own devices so that we can experience what life is like without God's grace. 
And he's allowed us to be shut up under that kind of failure so that he can rescue all of us together. That's God's strategy. The universe, as God has designed it, only works if you frame it, if you understand it from one specific angle. And that angle is grace. Everything else is meaningless. Everything else is futile. It's an enigma. It's a chasing after the wind. And to make this point even clearer, the preacher offers a story or a metaphor that illustrates this counterintuitive and counternatural reality that we call grace. It starts in verse 14. He says this. He says, There was once a small city with a few men in it, and a mighty king attacked it, besieging it and building strong siege works against it. However, inside that city there was a poor but wise man who lived in that city, and he could have delivered the city by his wisdom. He had some insight. Maybe he knew what the Achilles' heel of the invading king was. He could have delivered. But nobody listened to that man because he was deemed a poor man. So I concluded, the preacher says, that wisdom is better than might. But you can't access this wisdom if you despise poverty. If you are not in touch with, the, with your own poverty, then you can't access this wisdom. No one ever listens to his advice. The words of the wise are heard in quiet more than the shouting of a ruler is heard among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner can destroy much that is good. The preacher is saying that your life is like the city. And if you want your life, that is the city, to be safe, and you want your life to prosper, the city to prosper, you have to learn how to listen to the poor man that lives inside of your life. That there is a mighty king. This is the attack that life launches on you. It doesn't matter who you are, what race you are, what gender you are, what orientation you are. However you identify yourself, your life is going to be bad. Your life is going to have pain in it. You are going to suffer. You're not going to escape it. Nobody does. If you don't believe me, if you think that the grass is greener on the other side, read and learn about people on the other side. They're miserable, just as you are. And we're all sort of shut up under disobedience, Romans says. And the only way to access the wisdom that's going to save your life is you have to become comfortable with poverty, the poverty of your own spiritual state. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You have to be willing to bend down, come into contact with your own poverty, your own hunger, your own asking and learning and need and desperation to grow. Life has to feel hopeless left to your own devices. You have to come to that place. Maybe it's a rock-bottom experience for you. Maybe you learn lessons a little bit sooner than that. But a sinner, as the uh, Bible defines it, is not somebody who is just overtly wicked or evil or in rebellion against God, but it's somebody who is refusing to bend down 
and come to terms with their own poverty. One sinner can destroy much that is good. It's your arrogance. It's your delusion that's wreaking havoc on your life. And if anything is going to save you, it's going to be your humility. And all of the things that you call life that's happening to you, God's main agenda through all of it is to humble you, to cause you to listen to the poor man. Because only the poor man has the wisdom that you need. Uh, I was thinking about some of the uh, authors that I love, and I realized there's a theme. I really like smart, accomplished, thinking people who start out uh, antagonistic or atheistic towards the Christian faith. That's my favorite kind of author or thinker. And then through their own research and thinking and honesty about how life works, as they study and ponder the universe, they come to their own conclusion that life is about grace and life is about God. And until we connect in humility to this God of grace, nothing makes sense. So I want to list out a couple of authors like that. Number one that comes to mind is Malcolm Gladwell. How many of you know Malcolm Gladwell? Just a little brief history on this guy. He grew up uh, in, in a Mennonite tradition. Mennonites are really serious Christians. They are sacrificial, community-oriented, conservative Christians. He grew up in this kind of tradition, rejected the faith, but as he began to ponder the universe, he started writing books. And some of his famous books are Blink, Tipping Point, Outliers, and his most recent one, David and Goliath. And every single book is a book about grace. If you read the book through the lens of grace, you'll understand Malcolm Gladwell's own spiritual journey. And at the last book, okay, let me give you a couple of examples. Blink. The, bl the book Blink is about how we think that we are conscious in making decisions, but in reality, so much of our decision-making is done for us. It happens in a blink. It's not conscious thinking. It's really something beyond the self. Second book, Tipping Point. He says that life is actually determined not by the big things that we do, but by the little things we didn't even know we were doing, that life is really determined by grace. And Outliers, Malcolm Gladwell talks about how these amazing heroes of life, these biographies we love to read about, he mentions Bill Gates, for example, it's not actually because they're amazing people. It's not by their works, he says, but it's because they get lucky. And that's the theme of the book. And then finally, David and Goliath, he writes about how it's always the little people who are able to defeat the big people. Hence the title, David and Goliath. And then, as he was researching for this book, David and Goliath, he came uh, to the notion that life is about grace. And then, through the research uh, part of writing this book, he converted himself to become a Christian again. And now he's on the Christian speaking circuit, speaking all over the world at Christian conferences, telling the story of his conversion back to Christianity. He discovered that life is meaningless apart from this one little humble insight 
that life is determined by God, not by works, but by grace. Another author like that is David Brooks. You can trace this transformation happening if you read, let's say, his book, Social Animal, and then read his latest book, Road to Character. He quotes so many pastors and biblical passages in that book. I thought I was reading a Christian book. But he attributes the success of life to humility. And then one of my other favorites, M. Scott Peck, who started writing a book called The Road Less Traveled as a kind of quasi-Buddhist. And then during the process of writing this book, he stumbled on the idea of serendipity. And he couldn't get over it. Because as he contemplated his own life and the uh, lives of his clients, he's a psychiatrist, he came to realize all of the significant turns in life that amount to salvation for people happen serendipitously. And he didn't know how to explain that. And then he came in contact with this idea of grace. And in, during, uh, about halfway through writing this book, he became a Christian. And so the first half of the book is Buddhist, and the second half of the book, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. But it's all weird theology. It's not, you know, it's, it's a brand new Christian thinker's writing. But I really appreciate that. And the author and speaker and uh, sort of leader that I admire and look up to the most, as some of you know, is Timothy Keller. And his whole story is about God's grace. And so this is what I want to invite you to think about this Sunday. Is do you have an orientation towards God's grace? Do you understand that it's not by your works, it's not by your charm that you're going to make it in life? When life gets hard, what you're going to need is God's grace. When you have to make decisions, what you're going to need is God's grace. Somehow that has to get embedded into your thinking and in your heart and in your habits and the way you relate to people. There was a rich young ruler that came to Jesus and he asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to get to inherit eternal life? And do you remember Jesus' response? He said, why do you call me good? Why, if you are wondering about salvation, are you thinking in terms of good? He said, don't you know? No one is good except God alone. That's not a category for human beings to think about. Get out of that mindset. That kind of framework doesn't explain life. It's not about being good. Okay, a couple of application points and then we close. Number one, I want to invite you to reframe your life narrative. If you were to write your own eulogy, or write a few sentences for your tombstone. What's the key to life? What's your deathbed confession about how life works? What are the three pieces of advice that you want to leave your children or grandchildren? It can't be work hard. It can't be be smart. It can't be be well networked. It can't be get lucky. Somehow you have to include in there, as I look back on my life, it really is a story of God's grace. And you have to figure out how to tell that story through your life because it's that angle that's going to explain everything in your life. Nothing else will do it. Everything else is meaningless. 
1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says this, For who concedes you any superiority? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as though you did not? And so life is not about your superiority. It's not like you did something better than somebody else. That's not the story you want to tell about your life. And so Paul is pressing on this point even more. He says, what do you have? Name one thing that you have that you didn't receive. What were you born into the planet with? A high chance you just would die left to your own devices, right? A newborn babe cannot survive. Everything else, including the life itself, has been given to you. And so now on your deathbed, you're going to boast when you came into the world with nothing and everything you have, you've received. How dare you think that that's the advice you want to leave your grandchildren? Of course it wasn't about you and what you've done. It's about what you've received. That's your boast. The second application point is I want to invite you to become a learner and a grower every day. Seek how to learn and grow. Verse 17 from Ecclesiastes, this chapter says, the words of the wise are heard in quiet. What does this mean to you? It means when you're loud and busy trying to succeed in life, you're not going to hear the voice of wisdom. You're just not. You're so tuned into your own performance and your own grasping, your attempts at control, that you're not able to hear the voice of wisdom. To hear wisdom, you really have to quiet your life. You have to quiet yourself. And you really have to bend your ear down low. You have to ask, what did you say? Wait, did you say something? I thought I heard something. I hope I did because I really need something. I need to receive something today. Would you please speak to me today? Today I need guidance. Today I need hope. Today I need a voice to speak to me. I need wisdom from on high. I need a clue. I need help. You have to tap into your own hunger, your own asking, and bend down and in quiet here. As we close, I want to read you a passage uh, that I've uh, compressed for us, Isaiah 53. That'll be our closing, uh, the closing words and prayer. Um, as we get to that, I want to ask the question, who is this poor man? You know, the Old Testament is full of prophecies and words that describe Jesus Christ who came in the New Testament. So Isaiah 53 is such a passage, but Ecclesiastes 9, today's passage is the same thing. Who is this poor man? Who is wise and yet accessible only by the humble? Who is this poor man who is despised and rejected by men? Who is this poor man who was destroyed by sinners, yet in wisdom and triumph was raised from the dead? Who is the hope of the strong and the weak, the foolish and the wise, the good and the bad, the wealthy and the poor, the black and the white, the healthy and the lame, the found and the lost, the victim and the terrorist? Who is the hope 
of all that live. And I want to submit to you that the poor man that the preacher makes mention of is no one other than Jesus Christ. He is the embodiment of grace and truth. And you come to him humbly and you bend your life down to him and you hear from him. Consider who this poor man is as we close. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. By his wisdom, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Would you look to Christ for your life? Amen.